The following episode isn't gory or gratuitous, but it does deal with the topics of self-harm and death, so listener discretion is advised. This is all a test. This is all a test. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Uncover-Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunla, and with me, as always, in the bunker, is Professor Nathan Radke. So this is being recorded towards the end of 2023. Yes, it is. And we've been telling a story in 2023, the whole year. Yep. We've been telling the story of the myth of the flying saucer. Correct. Now, this isn't to say that aliens are a myth, because they're not. Aliens exist. We think. Somewhere. I mean, we don't know. Seems very likely. Yeah. Although then, also maybe not. And not even really a question about what UFOs actually are, because we don't know. That's the you. Because that's the you. But instead, looking at the way our culture views UFOs and aliens. Right. For any listener who is very interested in this history, just start sometime, I think, in January. We even did a recap episode. But anyway, we are now at a different stage in the narrative. Yes, but I should point out something that... <laughs> We've mentioned but haven't really gotten deep into is that there were actually two main branches of UFO lore. Okay. I would label them the demonic and the angelic. Okay. The demonic, those are the aliens that are here to attack us. Mm -hmm. And the angelic, of course, are the, are the ones, ones that help us. That, exactly. They're going to save us. And you're right that in a way we have been talking about that on and off in different ways without giving them that label. The first contactee movement people were talking about how they were coming to protect us from ourselves yeah and and they were almost overtly angelic yeah. frequently they were talking the aliens who the contactees claimed that they were interacting with would talk about god and jesus yeah they'd be like missionaries from outer space yeah but using our earthly christianity yeah which is one of the reasons why the contactee movement didn't make a ton of sense but then as we developed this Especially in the 80s, with its antecedents in the 70s, a new worry that maybe this was actually not benign and that there were people or aliens, I guess, coming to do harm. In the 60s, we went from contactee to abductee. In the 70s, we went to cattle mutilation. Yeah. In the 80s, we went to like government secretly working behind the scenes with evil aliens. And then, of course, we hit the 90s, right. which is where our story takes place today. Right. But interestingly, this doesn't come to us from that sort of demonic alien branch. Okay. This tragic story comes to us from the angelic angel branch. All right. Angelic and, angel branch, eh? Yeah. I saw angelic angel branch open for ball trap <laughs> at Lee's Palace like 20 years ago. They were fantastic. <laughs> it, it, it's obvious how, how the, there's a danger of that demonic alien story, that it feeds paranoia. And that paranoia makes it easy to manipulate people mm -hmm. and isolate people and alienate people. And we saw terrible stories come from that demonic alien thread. Things like, you know, the, the Richard Doty story of using that scary alien story to cover up things and to manipulate people. Right. Sure. There's scapegoating. There's political disengagement. All of these things can happen from that story of the evil aliens. Mm-hmm. This episode, we're looking at the angelic aliens, and it turns out that there is a danger there as well. Mm -hmm. To get into that danger, we're going to start looking at a theorist who we've mentioned before, but we're going to get more into today, and that is the French theorist Jacques Vallée. UFO writer. Yeah, UFOlogist. 
Uh, he is a fancy guy. He's got degrees in mathematics, computer science, astrophysics. He's got so a fancy name. He's got a, well, he's a Frenchman. <laughs> the French are a fancy people. He's got some fancy book learning. Okay. But he's also done some interesting field work. Okay. Now, he starts off interested in UFOs in the early 60s and starts with the position that he believes the extraterrestrial hypothesis for the explanation for UFOs. Oh, does he? Yeah, that's, so he, that's where he, he starts. So he starts out as a believer. Yeah. Interesting. But as he continues his research, he becomes less convinced of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Uh, there's a lot of aspects of this. A lot of them are cultural. He says there's so many cro there's so much crossover between the modern alien stories we tell now and folklore from the past. Mm -hmm. And that could be read a couple different ways. One, well, we were engaging with aliens in the past. Right, which itself is a thesis in a lot of uh, television shows that deal with aliens. Yeah, that a lot of these old myths and things were actually about aliens. And what Valet says is that it's more likely that it isn't that the real aliens were being visited by affected our folklore, but that our folklore has shaped the way that we tell the story of aliens. Yeah. There's the statistical unlikelihood, the sheer weight of reports of people encountering UFOs actually makes Valet think that it's less likely that they are extraterrestrial. You might want to elaborate on that, because it's an interesting idea. The fact that because a lot of people are seeing it, then... I mean, he's a mathematician, and so he, he crunches all of the numbers of this, and he says, okay, we have this many UFO sightings, but none of them are official. Yeah. And none of them provide any physical evidence. Yeah. And none of them are in the midst of like great big groups of people who all see the same thing. Right, exactly. And so we have all of these hundreds and thousands of individual stories. Yeah. And if all of those individual people just happen to be bumping into UFOs, it's weird that no large group of people have ever had like a really good long sighting of UFO. Yeah. Basically, where are they? Yep. If they're all, if everybody's having if these experiences, so common, where, where are the are heck they? are they? Yeah, that's basically it. I think this is the first time, can I just say? on this podcast, that I was the pithy one, that I was the one who yeah. came with, who came in with a one-sentence line. It's good pith. <laughs> and it only took you 100 episodes. Only 100? It's my 100th episode! Uh, we'll, get, we'll get to that. The other one is, and this is something that we've commented on before, Valet thinks it's really strange that so many of the people who claim to have seen aliens, for example, the contactees, described basically humans. Right. Because there's no reason why a creature that evolved on a completely different planet would in any way resemble a human being. Yes, thank you. This was my primary critique of Star Trek. Yeah. Like, come but, on, guys. And But that was because they didn't have the budget. And, and we also, talked about this before. That Also, narratively, it probably makes it a lot easier if you're not dealing with plants that communicate in light. Right. On your... 45 bit of television episode. I mean, if Captain Kirk falls in love with a vibrating crystal, right? That, that's going to be an awkward. Odd, that's an odd, that's an odd story. <laughs> now, interestingly, Valet argues that, you know what? In a way, it doesn't even matter whether flying saucers are real or not. Okay. He says, not as a scientist. As a scientist, of course it matters because it's a thing you can investigate. Yeah. But from a social perspective, it doesn't matter because the effect on members of the population they have is real regardless. Hmm. And because of this, he starts to worry. What if the source of the UFO phenomenon was not extraterrestrial, but much closer to home? I'm going to read from Valet's work, Messengers of Deception, from 1979. Now, this is about uh, the Great Condon Report in the late 60s, okay. which the American government put out 
And they said, hey, you know what? We put all these scientists to this, and we've decided there's nothing to the UFO phenomenon. So the Condon Report basically shuts down Blue Book. It's yeah. the, what have we learned from Blue Book? And there was people getting upset within various agencies who were like, why are we spending money on this stuff? And other people were like, no, no, we got to spend money on to see if there's something there. And so then the Condon Report was put together to kind of see, well, what have we discovered? And should we keep investigating this stuff? And the answer was, we haven't discovered anything new that seems strange. And so let's stop funding Project Blue Book. Which, of course, was untrue. Hmm. Well, a lot of people within the UFO scene are like, this is a smear job. This is just total nonsense. Yeah, it's like the Warren it's Commission. Not, exactly. It's a cover-up. So this is what Valet says about that. In 1967, Condon and his team could have done a serious study of UFOs, but they didn't. Now it's too late for science. The social, historical, and political consequences of the spreading belief in the contact with space are here, and they are real, no matter how ludicrous and bizarre they appear. In fact, the more ludicrous and bizarre they appear, the more effective they are as subliminal seduction and as other forms of psychological control. Subliminal seduction. And like psychological that. control. I mean, here's, here's the claim that he's going to make about what UFOs are okay. in this book. The belief in UFO contact and the expectation of visitation by beings from space is promoted by certain groups of people who are responsible for advertising UFO contacts, for circulating faked photographs, often in connection with genuine sightings, for interfering with witnesses and researchers, and for generating systematic disinformation about the phenomenon. We may find that they belong or have access to military, media, and government circles. In these games, it is not clear exactly which side is infiltrating the other. Huh. That's interesting for 1979. Yeah, yeah. Because we know that there's an aspect of that that turns out to be true. Yeah, it's a, an important aspect. Yeah. Like a really influential part of the UFO story is the American government telling UFO lies. Yeah. Through and then the other, the other aspect is grifters and scammers who are perpetrating known hoaxes yep. for the purpose of selling books and and making a name for themselves yeah so he's got like two of the main threads already that we have laboriously tries to tease out in the in this narrative that we've generated over the last year he's got them right there yeah he's calling his shots and i have to say at this point a lot of the stuff he says makes a lot of sense to me oh so in order to further investigate this relationship between ufo beliefs and manipulation because he does think that ufo beliefs are being pushed in order to manipulate human beings okay Valet studies the contact tea movement. Okay. And in the mid-1970s, he visits a meeting in San Francisco with a group of people who had left their lives and their jobs and their families to follow a man and a woman who claimed that they had been sent from the evolutionary level above human and would be returning there in a spaceship in a few months. Okay. The man and the woman called themselves The Two. Okay. And whenever I say The Two, capitalize it in your head. Right. They are The Two, and the group was called Human Individual Metamorphosis, or HIM. Okay. So Valet describes in his book being at this meeting. He says that one of the group members gave the talk while the two, capitalized, sat quietly on the stage. And this speaker who was talking explained how the two were here in order to prepare select individuals who would, through following the words of the two, physically transform into a body that would be able to withstand the radiation of deep space travel. Uh huh. So you listen to these two? They will change your bodies. Right. And you can go to space. Now, the speaker also claimed that in just a few months, there was going to be a demonstration. 
Demonstration, also capitalized. <laughs> the two would be assassinated. Three and a half days later, they would be resurrected in order to show the world that once you have evolved to the level beyond human, you have overcome death itself. Mm. Here's a quote from the speaker. If you find it extremely far out when you first hear it, you may be amazed at how quickly it seems to make sense and seems logical. And you are capable of picking up this information without solving it on a rational, conscious level. That worries me as a... Somebody As somebody who's, who's committed to rational thought, yeah, it it is always worrying when somebody says, "Yeah, this you could just bypass don't think the about this. Don't think yeah, about yeah, this yeah. too hard. You're yeah. thinking about this too hard. Just allow yourself to believe it without thinking about it too hard." Now you might think, "Okay, well, what we have here then is a scam." Yes, you know they're they're going to try and get money from these people. They're going to try and like sell something because we've seen that over and over again. Exactly, especially also in the UFO community. Yeah. However, the speaker told the audience that what the two were offering was completely free of charge. Mm -hmm. One of the audience members pointed out, wait, it isn't free because you put in your time and your devotion and your effort. Right. And the speaker responded, it only costs your life, you know. Ooh, that's some dark foreshadowing right there. Yeah. Now, needless to say, the demonstration, capital D, didn't occur. Oh. The two were not assassinated. They weren't resurrected. Oh. So, the, oh, okay. But, what, so, but, sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt your narrative. But so this was not, I mean, you did just say this isn't a conventional scam. It is not. So was this speaker kind of predicting the future as opposed to them having generated a plan to? Oh, yeah, no, this was, they were predicting what was going to happen. It was part, I of, see. It was part of God's plan. I see. And they had some kind of divine access Revealed to it. knowledge. Revealed As we'll knowledge. get into in a bit. Yeah. Okay. So I was thinking, sorry to belabor the point, I was thinking they were going to essentially fake their own deaths and oh. then be like, ta-da, it works, believe us. And if they had been scammers- That's what they would have done. That would have been a great idea. So this is an interesting uh, a piece of evidence for the fact that they might not have been scammers. Yeah. But the demonstration didn't occur, so they were wrong. Right. The two were not assassinated and they weren't resurrected. But that comment the speaker made to the audience, it only cost your life, you know, that turned out to be completely accurate. Mm -hmm. Because this group, this HIM, would eventually become known as Heaven's Gate. Mm -hmm. And two decades later, dozens of them would be dead by their own hands. Yep. So the speaker was also true that the two could change your body. Yeah, yeah, in a horrifying way. Yeah. So, to understand Heaven's Gate, we need to look more closely at those two quiet people on the stage that day. Mm -hmm. So, let's look at the two. They were born Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles, although they would eventually adopt a number of different names like Bo and Peep and Guinea and Pig, before eventually settling on Doe and T. Mm -hmm. And before, when I'm talking about their past, I'm going to use Applewhite and Nettles. Sure, that helps. Because Bo and Peep or whatever. I'm not going to use Bo and Peep. I'm not going to use Guinea and Pig. I mean, it's kind of adorable, but... There is an adorable... There's an adorable aspect to all of this, which makes it, I think, more heartbreaking. Right. So I will eventually call them Doe and T when we get later on in this narrative, when okay. they've sort of settled when on those When they names. have their conversion, maybe. Exactly. Okay. But they start out... As Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles. And they don't know each other. Yeah. Applewhite and Nettles meet in the early 1970s. Nettles was a nurse in her late 40s in the process of divorcing her husband and leaving her family. 
Applewhite was a divorced former teacher who had gotten in trouble for having inappropriate relationships with his students. Mm -hmm. He had then had a string of short-term... That's short -term... a nice euphemism. Yeah, well, I'm trying to... <laughs> We're keeping it PG. Exactly. Uh, he'd also had a, a number of short-term failed relationships with both men and women. Okay. Now, Applewhite, by his own account, suffered a nervous breakdown and started hearing voices. Nettles met him while she was working at the hospital. Either he was visiting the hospital, or I think much more likely he was a patient at the hospital. Oh, I always assumed he was a patient. Well, I thought that he was her patient. Yeah, and fact. that's probably true. Okay. But in, in his account, he was visiting the hospital. But that could be a euphemism. Right. I was just visiting the hospital. Right, the air quotes. Mm -hmm. And she convinces him that the voices that he's hearing were actually giving him messages from space. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't having a mental breakdown. He was getting revealed knowledge. Mm -hmm. Now, at this point, they hadn't created a cult yet, uh, since they're missing out on the most important aspect of a cult, which is having a bunch of followers. But I am going to refer to this group that they would eventually form as a cult. And since the word cult is kind of problematic and controversial, I think we need to discuss it and define it. Okay. So what are some of the reasons why a lot of researchers are kind of hesitant about using the word cult? Well, it has sort of derogatory connotations. Yeah. And actually, I really like one of my profs in undergrad put it the following way. Religion is what your parents do and cult is what your kids do. Right. And it, it really speaks to the where that sits within a normative discourse in terms of a lot of times cults and religions are actually quite similar, although we will focus obviously briefly on the distinctions and they're important, but there's a lot of things that actually unites them. They are generally groups of believers. They, uh, it's a religion basically, but it has a, it has a non-normative status Often because it'll be, you know, devoted to a particular person who is still living right. as, a, as opposed to a person who is long dead. And, and this is why a lot of researchers refer to them now as new religious movements rather than cults. Right. Okay. Now, I would argue that the word cult is still useful. Okay. But I think we have to narrow it down. All right. And so when I say cult, it has the following characteristics. One, centralized leadership. Yep. Which you mentioned often centralized in the form of a single person. Mm -hmm. Now, Heaven's Gate featured the two, obviously, but according to former members in Applewhite's own writings, Nettles was the boss. Okay. Until her passing, and then which point he became the boss. But there was still, even though there was two of them, there was still always one leader who was ultimately in charge. Uh, Nettles was actually coming up with all the metaphysics and the, the theory, and Applewhite was the spokesman. Now, that leader's power, in, a, in the way I understand a cult, is justified through revealed knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so the leader has a claimed personal connection to a supernatural entity. This is what revealed knowledge is. This isn't knowledge that anyone can have access to through observation or experimentation. You claim, not you, Lee, but in general, <laughs> the, the, the cult leader claims that they have like a, like a personal relationship with some kind of magical or supernatural being. Yep. A god or ghost or spirit or aliens or whatever. Now that knowledge, that revealed knowledge, which of course can't be tested, it can't be checked, it can't be verified because of the nature of the revealed knowledge, that supports 
in a cult a totalist worldview mm -hmm. that dictates the members' internal and external lives. What is a totalist worldview? <sighs> I agree. You can keep that sigh in. Yeah, I will. A, a totalist worldview is one in which everything is subsumed within an ideology, and that ideology has the mechanisms within it to subsume everything. That's such an abstract and difficult oh boy, way of putting it. I, I need it. you to take another swing at that sentence. Um, I mean, it was a fine sentence, but it is also. I think, I think it gets. I think it's accurate, but it's maybe not helpful because it's so abstract. A totalizing worldview or a totalist worldview is when I guess you walk into it already knowing the truth. You know that this revealed knowledge that your group believes in is the ultimate truth, and every counterfactual that you encounter is somehow neutralized in order that you maintain fidelity to that original viewpoint. Yeah. How's that? The totalist worldview. Oh, you're just is... going to give me the answer, aren't you? No, I mean, I agree with everything you said, and I'm just going to say it in a pithy way. Okay. That's why you're here. The totalist worldview explains everything. Yeah. But then the reason I struggle with that is because how does that then distinguish itself from something like science or some of the kinds of – because I, while I agree with everything that you said so far, while you're talking, I'm also thinking, yeah, but I could imagine examples where this is true and yet it's not a cult or this is true and yet it's not a totalizing worldview. Science tells us nothing about how we should live our personal lives. Okay, but ethics might. Right. I'm speaking to somebody who wrote a textbook but then, on but, this but then, subject. But then ethics tells us nothing about how <laughs> stars are formed. Oh, I see. So what you're suggesting is that this is something that is totalizing. Yes. Ah, there we you go. should have said so. Yeah. Totalist worldview. <laughs> okay. The structure of a cult, I would argue, is hierarchical and exploitive. I think that exploitive dimension is really important yep. because when you're talking, for example, about a leader, you know, a living leader who you have a certain devotion towards and who has revealed knowledge, well, this is often the case in, say, in the Hindu religious tradition, is that as opposed to, say, in Christianity or in Islam, where the theology and the holiness, I guess, is embodied in a book. Mm-hmm. It's often embodied in a teacher, a guru, a guru, who has an ashram where you go and that teacher is actually the embodiment of the holy. And so it's a different way of having a very mainstream religion that, from the Western perspective, I guess, gets close to your definition of the cult. Mm -hmm. But I think this exploitative dimension is really important because that's yep. the thing that, for me, also always makes a cult a cult. Yep. Like, they take you away from your family, you start working for them, you have to give all your money to them, you are often, or maybe not often, but sexual abuses can be part it's of it. Common. Psychological abuse can be part of it. Yep. And Physical exploitation, financial exploitation. Exactly. And I think that's for me at least that's what makes a cult a cult yeah like if what i want to do is is, is 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 sort of like add intensity variables to your definition i say okay a leader is important and revealed mm -hmm. knowledge is important but the exploitation that's really important yeah and and i would say that a cult needs all of these things yeah it needs all of them you talked about the isolation the isolation and alienation 
I think those are key aspects of a cult that are used to maintain that membership. Yeah, you get the people away from their friends, away from their family, sometimes even take them to a different country where the only other social relationships they have are members of that cult. And pretty quickly, their resistance crumbles. Particularly when you mix all of that in with paranoia of the outside world. Yeah. And so I think if you have all of those things, then I am content to call that a cult. Okay, fine. And I think that we still need the word. Good. I'm I'm on board. So Heaven's Gate is a cult. You say you're on board or you are bored? No, I am on board. Okay. I'm sorry. To summarize then, what we've got is we have a cult that emerges in the 1970s, eventually known as Heaven's Gate. It's got two leaders, and they have revealed knowledge from some kind of superior evolutionary being. Yep. And this, you're suggesting, is maybe going to end badly. It sure will. I guarantee it ends badly. And it's got aliens. Yes, it does. So at this point in the early 1970s, the two hadn't formed a cult, but the ingredients were already present. Okay. So we've got the revealed knowledge because... Well, well I mean, it's, it's tricky because we've got Applewhite and Nettles. And yes. they each bring something to this belief system, to uh-huh. this new belief system. So Applewhite, the thing he brings is Christianity. Okay. What does Christianity bring to this cult? I mean, most importantly, it brings the book of Revelation. Okay. Which I think we need to do an entire episode on at some point. No. <laughs> this For anybody who is not a long-term friend of Nathan's, his second obsession, besides airplanes, is the book of Revelations. Mostly like- it's just correcting people when they call it the book of Revelations. <laughs> oh, yes. that Fine. Book of Revelation. Book of Revelation. Because what does the book of Revelation have? It's got apocalyptic eschatology. Ooh. So it's gotten into the world. Yes. It's got the inevitability of the future, what in the Christian world is called uh, dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. This idea that the future is already written and we're just kind of moving into it inevitably. Yeah. Rather than the future being some kind of unexplored place that anything could happen, it's like, no, these things will happen. Right. And if we look for signs and symbols, then we will be able to predict it. Yeah. It's also got monsters. Yeah. So many monsters. The book of Revelation has these characters that are the two witnesses. Okay. Now, these two witnesses, they are given revealed knowledge in the book of Revelation by God to prophecy for... Uh, 1,260 days, and they are persecuted and they're not believed, kind of classic story, and then they are murdered and then they come back to life. And so that story of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation, of course, is going to influence the story that Applewhite and Nettles are going to try to sell. Okay. Uh, the the idea of faith in hidden things, uh-huh. the idea of a divine being taking a temporarily fleshy form on earth. Okay. The connection of sex with sin and the rejection of the fleshy world in general. Okay. All of these things you could get from Christianity. Mm-hmm. And all of these things are brought by Applewhite to this new movement. Now, Nettles, she has some Baptist background. So she's got like a little bit of knowledge about Christianity. But for the most part, what she's bringing is New Age thinking. In particular, Blavatsky and Theosophy. Okay. Yeah. Red flags. Yeah. How so? Well, we I mean, we've done an episode on Blavatsky. Yes. And she comes up a lot in the background in our research. Yeah. And we were talking before we went on air today about how she is such a dominant theme, a kind of a, but hidden sort of in the background of a lot of these new age spiritual movements of a lot of 
kind of influences in the first half and into the second half of the 20th century, it, it kind of comes back to Blavatsky. I think even like Alternative 3 yep. hit upon her Alternative as well. Alternative 3 did, Atlantis does. Ironically, for somebody who's this influential in the occult movement, she is kind of a hidden figure. Yeah. She's a hidden occult figure. Yeah, which, which is, is brilliant. Yes. Because that's the occult all over. Yeah. So what does theosophy bring? We're not going to get into a whole discussion on it, but Thank basically it's, goodness. it's the concept of the hidden master as a source of revealed knowledge. Okay. And this idea of spiritual evolution and, again, hierarchy. Mm -hmm. To a theosophist, the world is, again, kind of an illusion, but there are these hidden masters that are kind of sprinkled around. And if you can find right. one, they have the revealed knowledge that they can share with you, and then you can go off and scam a bunch of people. So that's what Nettles brings, and that's what Applewhite brings. And then there's something that society in general brings, which is pop culture. What pop culture brought them is UFOs and alien contact, things like the contact team movement, or TV shows like Star Trek. Okay. These are also hugely influential in what's eventually going to become Heaven's Gate. So in the 1970s, there were a lot of people trying to make this move of combining UFOs and flying saucers with theosophy and hidden masters. The book in front of you right now is from the 1970s. Flying Saucer Message by Rex Duta. Yeah. Open it randomly and just read a selection of it. All right. How often do we bother about the other chap? Unless we get something from it. Kudos, admiration, security, gold, obedience, homage, even hate, infamy, struggle, something. How often, in truth, do we really give totally, completely, unselfishly, without bargain, except to chosen people or causes? Do we open to all and sundry, regardless, equally to the lovable as to the unlovable, to the heathen as to the faithful, to the communist as well as to the capitalist? And it goes on like that. Yeah. That was a hard read. But <laughs> but it but that was a perfect it just flows off the tongue. But that was a perfect random selection. <laughs> because it does sort of show the appeal. It's saying, hey, there's something wrong. Yes. There's something wrong about us. Mm -hmm. There's something about something wrong about the way we're living in mm -hmm. this modern society. And I think that's one of those tricks used by magicians, used by people who do cold readings, where they express a truth that we all feel and we feel it quite personally. Yeah. And it feels very much like you're talking to me when you say that. Yeah. And right? so that book that you were reading from, they're going to start off with, hey, you know, this world feels a little bit crooked and terrible. Yeah. Well, good news. The flying saucers have got a message for us about love and hope and truth. Okay. Was this a book that came out of the Heaven's Gate movement? No, this was just like a parallel the, development. This is just like people are trying this out in the 70s. Yeah. They're, they're merging theosophy and flying saucers as a way to answer societal problems and questions that are emerging. Yeah, it was just, it was out there in the world and a bunch of different people grabbed onto a very similar idea. So what is the basic specific pitch that the two come up with? Okay. Give they it to say, me. They say, first of all, they were the witnesses of Revelation. Okay. So they have been reincarnated. Okay. They were given direct messages from God through revealed knowledge that it was possible to, through the spiritual enlightenment provided by them and only them, that you could physically change your body so that you could survive the radiation of deep space, which then means that you could leave this hard world. Okay. You could leave this cruel world on a flying saucer that would land and rescue anyone who had followed and believed the two. Hmm. Oh, and that flying saucer piloted by Jesus. Huh. Okay. 
what a strange theology. Like, it's really... It's a combination. It really is of a combination theosophy of theosophy and Christianity and flag saucers. Yep. This seems like common religious, be it religious mainstream or cultish discourse. Like, hey, things suck and we've got an answer to make it better. As I walked down in my beloved neighborhood of Parkdale, mm. as I walked down Queen Street, or even as I go further afield and go down Lakeshore, something like that. You yeah. know what I'm seeing on every lamp post, on every light pole? Stickers that say... They lied. Well, that that too. I think also associated with that, stickers that say, I will fly soon. Really? Yep. I haven't seen these. I'll take some pictures of them and show them. Like, they are everywhere. They're in front of our campus at Lakeshore. Really? Yep. They're all over the place. I will fly soon. Is this some kind of... Rapture pop- stuff. It is, eh? This is rapture stuff. Yeah. Oh, I was wondering if this was some kind of pop culture thing that I was missing. No, I mean, kind of, It's but it's rapture. Right, this but idea it's that, old-timey pop culture. Yeah. So what they've done is they've taken the idea of the rapture, which was gaining popularity in the 1970s. Okay. And they're just adding some flying saucer stuff, which is going to get you believers that are going to be turned off by the rapture. Right, right, right. So they're 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 bringing in both the religious... And the sort of the the, the science fiction fans. Mm-hmm. Okay. They are spreading the story, and it grows slowly for the first few years. Applewhite has some legal troubles with credit card fraud, uh, spent some time in jail. But in April of 1975, they are put into, their ideas are, are put into a fertile garden. Because they're introduced to a group of people who are already following a new age guru named Clarence Klug. And a few dozen people, including Klug, left their homes and joined the two. Okay. So that's pretty good. When you can, like, go and guru a guru, that's that's some good guruing. Guruing. In September 1975, that group, which is now starting to grow, gave a talk in a small town in Oregon named Waldport. Okay. In a town of 600, 150 people turned out to listen to the talk. That's a good percentage of that town. Yeah. And... Of them, 20 people left their homes to be with the group. One in 30 Waldport residents decided to go join this group. Wow. Those are good numbers. Yeah, they did a they did a good job. Now, why? What was it about Waldport? Well, one third generation resident, a Mrs. Haslett, said, There were a lot of lost souls from the hippie period who settled here in communes. They were looking for some sort of answer. Mm-hmm. And so by the end of 1975... The group had about 200 members, although they didn't have a permanent home, and they were moving from campsite to campsite along the West Coast. And by all accounts, they were very considerate and tidy campers. Okay. So who were these people? Who were these people that were really buying into this message that the two was was sending? Well, like the citizens of Waldport, they tended to be seekers. We should talk a little bit about this idea, because based on the 100th episode we did at the beginning of the year, I feel like you were... In like an earlier part of your life, you were something of a seeker. Yeah, for sure. What What is a seeker? Well, I mean, this is a very personal rendition of it, but it's somebody who's looking for answers to things beyond what's readily available, like answers to questions like, what's the meaning of life? And why am I here? And what should I do? As opposed to like, you know, just going about your day. Yeah. Or just answers that you can look up on Wikipedia or something. I, what was it? I think Tolstoy said, 
science can give you the answer to everything except what really matters, yeah. which is like, what's the point? Why am I here? And what should I do? And so I a, think a that's secret, a somebody's looking for like profound, has profound questions and is looking for profound answers to those profound questions. Yeah, I, I would say so. No, I was not a seeker. I had the same questions, but I my answers were all just nihilistic. Well, there is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no anything. Yeah. And I, I've come around to that. Oh, but I'm sorry. No, it's not your fault. Yeah. I, I got there all on my own. Yeah. I'm, but... I'm, no, I'm, I'm not apologetic. <laughs> I'm just, I'm sorry because it's, it does its own kind of damage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes. And, and it, if anything, kind of like ex-smokers are the people who are the most furious with smokers. Yes. I feel like as an ex-seeker. Yes. I'm, I'm actually, my nihilistic self is, I think, more tolerant yes. of seekering than you are now. No, you're absolutely right. You're, it's the worst. The converts are always the worst lot. Um, and I can attest to that being a convert, uh, in many different ways to many different things. And I'm always insufferable in the thing that I've been converted to. Right. Like, like, like you're going to, you're going to get thrown out of a lot of parties, I think. Yeah. Well, I don't even get invited. That's how that works. <laughs> even, even better. <laughs> well, don't invite Lee. He's just going to, he's just going to talk his mouth off. He's going to dump on all of our cherished beliefs. Exactly. So these people were seekers. That yeah. was, that was the thing in the seventies was a time filled with seekers. Yeah. That but, makes sense. But some of them left well paying jobs. Some of them left expensive homes. Right. But for the most part, they were unemployed or had jobs they weren't that attached to. Right. One person who was in this group of 200 was none of those things. He was Robert Balch, and he was actually a secret undercover researcher. Wow. Okay. Like a fessenger of, of this time. Yeah. And I think actually probably some of the listeners are saying, wait a second. He told this story already. Yes, but this is a different guy yep. and a different group. We're not repeating ourselves. History is repeating itself. Again. We did We did tell the story of the 1950s UFO cult that believed that a flying saucer was going to land and save all the believers, and then an undercover researcher went, and that was, yeah, that was Festinger. Yeah, the same thing is happening again. So Balch is interested in the idea of brainwashing. Okay. Which is a term that comes out a lot when you're talking about cults. Yes. How can people have these beliefs? How can people do these actions? Right. There must have been a kind of brainwashing. And brainwashing was a kind of a hangover from the late 50s and 60s, where that idea first emerged with respect to, I think it was the Korean War, and the idea that these American, these good American boys, quote unquote, were being somehow corrupted into believing communist propaganda. Something must they somehow got to them, and it became this cultural trope. It's a really interesting idea with very little actual psychological evidence to it. That's the problem. Because as exactly as you say, it was American pilots shot down over North Korea who would then be filmed sort of bad-mouthing America and bad-mouthing capitalism. Yeah. And so the American government back at home were like, how can these pilots be saying these terrible things about us? <laughs> there must have been brainwashing. But again, exactly as you say, there's never really been that much hard evidence behind the concept of the brainwash. And actually, Balch, the secret researcher, he comes to the conclusion that the classic idea of the brainwashed cult member isn't accurate or helpful no. to our understanding. Yeah. He says, we shouldn't be looking for a psychological explanation for cult behavior, but instead, we should look to sociology. I was, 
That's brilliant. I mean, I was thinking that yeah, it's brilliant because I was because you were. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I was thinking that. Whoops. Wow. Um, I know. <laughs> no wonder you don't get insufferably. Yeah, I could even hear it myself. Uh, but it's true, like. Because belief has been one of these questions that has really obsessed me as a research topic for a really long time. And that's what I've discovered as well, relying on a lot of, you know, really smart researchers, not my own work, that the way you shift people's belief is by doing things like changing their community. Yep. And it's not going to be because you are somehow... I don't know, manipulated. You haven't hacked into that brain, to that individual brain. Not in the way that they think. The way you yeah. hack into brains is by changing people's communities, putting them in different situations. I mean, putting people under stress can help with that process. But mm -hmm. yeah, like he says, it's not a question of reprogramming, deprogramming and reprogramming. But it's more of a sociological... socializing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, going back to an earlier point about the cult is why people are often taken out of their immediate familial relations and social circumstances because it makes it a lot easier to get them to buy into the ideas. Yeah, exactly. So Balch says, rather than looking at the minds of the members and saying, oh, what's wrong with this person? What's wrong with that person? What's wrong with this person? Look at the social situation the members were in. Okay. So there was a social situation they were in before the cult, which made them more vulnerable or susceptible to the message of the cult. And then there's the social situation of the cult itself. So there's a couple things about it. One, it was extremely regimented. Once they joined the group, once they joined the two, it was extremely regimented. In talks, the two would say that there were no rules at the compound. That's great. That really appeals to people with an individualistic mindset. Yeah. With people who have authority issues. Mm -hmm. That's That's fantastic. No rules. I'm in. However, there was no rules, but there were really specific guidelines. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> And these guidelines covered every, again, they were totalistic. They covered everything about what you did, how you behaved, how you should think, how much toothpaste you should use, like every single part of your life there was a guideline for. Hmm. And you had to give up all attachments to the human level to free yourself to be evacuated into the next level above human, which meant no friends, no family, no possessions other than the things you absolutely needed to have. No long hair, no sexual activity, no singing, no drug use, no socializing, no independent thought. Overtly, they were told you couldn't have independent thought. Hmm. Now, everybody within the group... I can was, see why this is not their sales pitch and when, yeah. on the first day. No, you start with no rules. Right. And then you show up and it's like, here are the millions of guidelines. Right. Everyone was placed into a couple, not for sexual purposes, but so that they could police each other. Ah. Uh. And make sure that they were conforming to the guidelines. Oh, fun, fun. There was a shared language, which, again, is common in, in cults. Uh, when people referred to vehicles, they're talking about their own bodies. Okay. If people were talking about evil spirits, those were demons who were trying to influence people to hold them back in this human world. And so people would start, if they, if they were going to say something that they knew the cult wouldn't be happy with, they would start off by saying, maybe this is just a spirit, but... Mm -hmm. You know, I would like some potato chips. <laughs> and this idea of faith, obedience to the guidelines, despite external evidence to the contrary, there was a thought-terminating cliche. You've, you've got to have faith. Mm -hmm. So when you encounter something that doesn't make any sense, something that 
is absurd, something that, that clearly isn't backed up by any kind of evidence. Your brain starts to react to that. And maybe you pull back a little bit from this belief system. And so you have a thought terminating cliche, something that can come in, interrupt that critical reasoning. Right. And that's what this was. We have to have faith. The idea of the thought terminating cliche comes to us through Lifton, Robert oh, J. Okay. Lifton, right, okay. who, did, uh, who did a lot of work on groups like uh, Om Shinrikyo. Right, 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 right. And this is in part why Balch says, you know, this idea of the classic brainwashed cult member isn't useful because that's not what he saw yeah. when he was with this group for seven weeks. So he was there for a long time. He even had a partner. He was, he was set up with a partner and the partner would say things like, oh, she could tell from his aura that he was a real strong believer. Uh-huh. And he would, in the inside, be thinking, uh, either she's not seeing the aura or my aura is misrepresenting myself or something. <laughs> my aura is lying. Yeah. My, I've got a lying aura. But there was a lot of doubt within that group still. Okay. One member who left the group later stated that whenever he asked someone a question inside the group, he received what sounded like a tape-recorded message as a reply. Mm -hmm. that, that, that was frustrating. He wasn't getting real answers. He was just getting rote memorization of what needed to be said. Right. And all of the members didn't fully believe the claims of the two. Uh, the people who joined up with like, the group... Sorry, all of the members or the members didn't believe all the claims? Well, a bit of both. Okay. Like, all of the members didn't believe all of the claims. Right, okay. I mean, these were people, because they were seekers... They joined, they joined up the group already coming from what's called a cultic milieu, in which they were already willing to believe in reincarnation and auras and ascended masters and psychic communication and flying saucers, interplanetary influence and things like that. They were ready for that already. But that didn't mean that the people accepted the claims made by the two without question. But, this is where the sociology kicks in, in order to conform to the group, mm -hmm. People would perform obedience. Sure. Even while they were harboring doubts. Sure. Of course. I mean, that's what we all do all the time. Yeah. No? And this is why Kurt Vonnegut said, you are who you pretend to be. Yeah. So be careful who you are pretending to be. Yeah. It's your Irving Goffman, who is a sociologist of this time, called it uh, your face. Yeah. It's your, it's the persona you represent to others. And of course, I mean, you have to, you have to, you can't. Otherwise, you don't get invited to parties. That's things, right. right. Like Lee doesn't. And what this means is... You know what? Some some listener is going to take pity on me and invite, invite me to, to a party. party and, and that's going to be even worse. And then they're going to be sorry. <laughs> Once you show up and start complaining about seekers. Here's how this mechanism works then. People are performing obedience because mm. we are social creatures yeah. and they're in a new social situation. Look, oh, just sorry to interrupt, but I, I, I make this example with my students where I'm like, do you stand at the, for the national anthem when you're at a sports arena, right? And then it's like, well, do you believe with all of the foreign policy decisions that your government's and Of course not. I mean, you have a lot of internal doubts, yeah. but then you perform a certain kind of social thing that, that makes it all work. You yeah, know, and, and the person and, on your left and your right just stood up. Exactly. And the person on your left and your right are probably harboring the same doubts. Or different ones. Yeah, but we're, the, an entire stadium full of people who are who, doubting. Who are doubting, are who nonetheless going to, are going to get up and up kind of do the thing. Because they're performing. There is a brilliant Stanislaw Lem short story. Uh-huh. In which there is a planet of robots. Okay. Homicidal robots. Okay. Who murder every human who comes close to even like landing on their planet. Okay. 
And so a spy, a human spy, is dressed up like a robot and sent to infiltrate that planet. Nice. And he's he's down there and it's just, it's a fanatic planet where everybody there is constantly trying to root out humans and talking about how awful humans are and proclaiming death to humans 24 hours a day. And so he's terrified. So the way that he fits in is by doing the same thing. Right. But then he notices something strange that a lot of the robots keep like sneaking off to do something. Oh. And what he's re and what he eventually realizes is wait, there isn't a single robot on this planet. <laughs> Every single one of the robots was actually a spy sent to infiltrate the robot planet. Right. And they were all performing robots, and that's why they were so over the top right. with all of their anti human proclamations. And so he takes off his helmet and everybody takes off their helmets. They're like, oh, not a single robot here. It was just us. Huh. That does, though, articulate a kind of a core truth about social engagement, except we never take off our robot helmets. Yeah. Stanislaw Lem, genius. Yeah, he's a great author. And so there's that aspect. And, and also, the more that these group members had given up to initially join the group, and people were told, as you were called, to give up everything, mm -hmm. the greater the sunk cost. Sure. And sunk cost is 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 lethal. your own mind trap. Yeah. Because somebody as smart as I wouldn't do something this stupid, so right. therefore I must be right. Yeah. And you just are stuck now. You can't get out. And if I leave, people are going to make fun of me and say that I made a bad choice. And, or first, I even have to recognize that within myself. Yeah. And while you were talking about doubt, that's what sort of what I was thinking is that any system of thought that tells you that doubt is bad is not good. Yeah. is going to lead you into these kinds of traps. I think if you contrast, again, I realize this is a bit off topic, but an idealized version of scientific inquiry, it's predicated on doubt. It's yeah. predicated on other people being like, wait a minute. I'm going to test what you said. Exactly. I don't believe it. Or maybe I don't believe the whole paradigm. I'm going to try and prove it incorrect. And if we're doing science right, when somebody does that to you, if you have a claim and somebody tests it, they're doing you a favor. Kind of. Doesn't feel I mean, like it. Does it certainly doesn't feel like it. But if you're doing science right and somebody proves you wrong, you should say thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, appreciate it's, it's that. Way better when they prove the other person wrong. Yes, because we're humans. <laughs> so that's the problem. The more they're given, the more they've given up, the greater the sunk cost, and then the greater the motivation to continue performing obedience in order to conform to the group. Right. So it's kind of it turns into a bit of a feedback loop. Sure. Here's what a former group member said to Balch. The thing is, I had these doubts, but the other side of me would say, but you've got to have faith. And then I would stuff it down. Right. So yeah. people internalize it isn't just that these thought-terminating cliches come from the outside. No, you police yourself. Yeah, they come from the inside. Sure. And you are put in a bind because if you, if this is only going to work by doing it this way, by not having doubt and by censoring yourself of doubt... You have already accepted that going into it. In, in fact, doing that, it, it makes you a better group member. Yeah, exactly. It, it's like an ethical choice that you have made. Yeah. But sometimes stuff happens that's just so against your belief system that the thought-terminating cliches don't work. Hmm. It's like right in front of you, something big and obvious. For example, the two claiming that they were going to be assassinated and come back to life, and then they don't. Hmm. That's a problem. That's a problem for the belief system. Was it, sorry, don't mean to keep interrupting no, you, a very compelling narrative, but was it a problem? Because the way I feel about 
belief systems is it wasn't much of a problem. It's just you kind of integrate it the way thought these these totalizing belief systems work is it very quickly just rationalizes and meshes it in a larger explanation that was always meant to be that way anyway. And yeah, it's fine. But it does take a bit of work to do that. Yeah. And it is an unpleasant feeling. That idea of cognitive dissonance, yes. which again comes from Festinger, that and is his, a Festinger, and his work with yeah. the with the 1950s UFO cult. So when they don't get bumped off, and they had made a specific date, mm -hmm. said it's going to be two months from the, it was going to be 1976, and it didn't happen. So then they had to come up with some kind of explanation. If the underlying theology of the group is based on the delusions of Apple White and Apple, and and we the two really believe this mm -hmm. that. He is receiving messages from some power beyond, and this is what he's told, then, hey, I can see why they would believe it. Yeah. That's an interesting element in this, is that, like, he has voices that talk to him, and so it really is like this force from outside. Yeah. In a way that, like, a, a maybe more typical scam doesn't work like this. Yeah. In fact, uh, listeners, before Lee started recording today, he said something extremely intelligent. Huh. Before that, I was recording. Yeah. And then not since. But, <laughs> and that was what you wanted to title this episode. Oh, yes. Grift without a grifter. Yeah. As in a scam without a scammer. A uh, lie without a liar. Yeah. We did have a problem, though, because regardless of their relationship to their beliefs, their beliefs had made a prediction that didn't come true. Yes. So there had to be a shift in their claims. So now they're saying, okay, the assassination did happen. Uh-huh. But it wasn't a literal killing. Right. It was the way they were treated by the press. Ah, uh, okay. A, it was a character assassination. Sure. Okay. Like, uh. Which, sorry, but again, when it comes to like how we get tricked and trapped into bad belief systems, this is also a core technique of the psychic where let's say a psychic who knows that they're they're perpetrating a fraud they'll mix the metaphorical and the literal as it suits them so if they say something you're like that's not true we'll do an example of the right that right now i'll be the psychic okay right so and you 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 be lee yes okay. i'm good at that actually yeah. i'm feeling that you've had an argument with your father lately no I haven't because my father died. You're a father figure. Right, exactly. Yeah, you yep. see. Of course, yes, I have had such an argument. You know? yeah. I mean, oh, of course. And by figure. argument, you mean a conflict, disagreement, yep. questioning. You know, exactly. Change the grounds that you're standing exactly. on. Exactly. And then it, it and, and if you allow that in, in part of the interpretive experience, then really everything's up for grabs now. Yeah. Of course. That explanation, which was satisfying to most of the group, didn't explain why the flying saucer didn't show up. That was part of it. And in fact, throughout the 70s, there were several flying saucer predictions made by the two. And of course, not a single one of them showed up. Mm -hmm. But this wasn't the only time the belief system of the two would be altered. They were changing it all of the time because belief systems adapt and adjust to changing situations. Well, especially if it's not working out. <laughs> especially if it's not <laughs> if working you're making out. very particular claims and they, they don't work out. Now, this is an example, I think, of the two specifically changing something on purpose, of them deliberately changing something. Because in the early days of 1975, the two were pushing this idea that anyone could tap into the message from the divine beings. Okay. Again, rookie mistake for a cult leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this is a problem from a structural perspective. 
Because in order to set up yourself as a cult leader, you need the monopoly of knowledge. Yes. You need to be the only person that the spirits talk to. Yep. So if the spirits can talk to anybody, what did they need the two for? Yep. And it was causing some chaos as far as maintaining canon in the belief system. Uh-huh. Because somebody else would pipe up and be like, well, I was just talking to the aliens. <laughs> and they said, I could have potato chips. <laughs> then we got a problem. So according to Balch, by 1977, quote, The two solved the problem by eliminating any possibility of individual revelation. They explained that all information from the next level was channeled through a chain of mind linking the next kingdom to individual members through T and Doe. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they're the hidden masters. They're no? the, yeah, exactly. As we said, belief systems aren't static entities. They change to fit their situations, particularly belief systems that are based on revealed knowledge, Mm -hmm. because you can always say, oh, I got a new download just now. That explains all of the cognitive dissonance that you guys are having. But there was a much more serious event that would take place in the early 1980s that would really shake up the group and fundamentally change it. Because T, formerly known as Bonnie Nettles, became extremely sick with cancer. Okay. And sometime in the early 1980s, she died, and her body was cremated, and she did not resurrect. <laughs> now, this is a terrible crisis for the group, because while Doe, formerly Marshall Applewhite, was the face of the group, T had been the one who drove the group's belief system. She mm-hmm. was the one who had studied Blavatsky and theosophy. And Doe referred to T as, as his older member, like she was his master, right? and took her lead in all matters metaphysical and spiritual. And so this caused a complete shakeup of the belief system in kind of an ominous and dangerous way. Mm-hmm. I mean, first, there was a typical du- doubling down, which often happens when a belief system is threatened. So instead of backing off from your belief system, you lean into it. Right. So now the two were not the witnesses from the book of Revelation. They were Jesus and God. Whoa. Yeah, that is a, that is a leap. That is a leap. That is a promotion. And Doe claimed that he was the reincarnation of Jesus who had come to prepare people to make the move to heaven, the level above human. And because the job was harder this time than the last time he was on earth, he had brought his father, T, with him. Mm -hmm. And so her job here was done, and so she had gone on to the next level. Mm -hmm. And secondly, and more ominously, there was a new understanding of how one gets to the level above human. Because before the idea was that you would physically transform in your body. Now, Doe would increasingly dismiss the importance of the physical body Instead of calling it the vehicle, now it's the container. Okay. In 1974, the two had told recruits, you do not have to die. In 1976, they said, you must take a changed over physical body with you into the next level. But after the death of T, those metaphysics took on a radical dualism. Mm-hmm. And that duality, of course, is mind and body. Right. These are two separate things. And now he's saying, you must leave everything of your humanness behind. This includes the ultimate sacrifice and demonstration of faith that is the shedding of your human body. In so doing, you will be picked up after shedding your vehicle and taken to another world by members of the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's not great. Nope. We can see where this is going. Yeah. And where it's going is into the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And we've already said before that the 1990s is sort of a time when conspiracies take a real like dark turn. Yeah. And that's what's going to happen here. The group had taken a number of names over the years. Human Individual Metamorphosis, Total Overcomers Anonymous, the Anonymous Sexaholic Celibate Church. Huh. I mean, they were really quite anti-sex because sex is a, a nice thing that you can do here with your human body. Right. 
And no, those human bodies are just vehicles of trash. They called themselves the UFO cult because that's what the media called them anyway. Okay. But as we enter the 90s, the group enters their final form, Heaven's Gate. Mm -hmm. They have a internet company uh, called Higher Source. Okay. Which is early. Yeah. That's, they were early adopters of the internet. Yeah. Okay. Which also brings up an important point that we should have said a long time ago. They were smart. Right. They were intelligent people. Yeah. The temptation is when when there's a group that 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 starts to believe in a belief system like this, the temptation again is to look for psychological or intelligence things. Yeah. No, no, these were a smart bunch of people. And we've seen that across the board. Yep. You don't have any correlationship between intelligence and implausible conspiracy theories. No. Nope. You'll have very smart people. You'll have very educated people who are as likely as anybody else to believe things that are, you know, really obviously not good interpretations of reality. Yeah. So they put up a website in 1995, which, like, had you even looked at a website by 1995? I think I was just... I was using email by 1995. I think I went online for the first time in 94. So basically, this is ground floor stuff. Yeah. They are doing computer programming. They're doing uh, websites. Their website is still up, by the way. Whoa. Yeah. I spent a lot of time on it in the last month. You can go look at it. It so looks like a website from the 1990s. Is it in the Wayback Machine? Like, no, is it an archive thing? Someone is still running it. Huh. So by this point, the numbers have gone from about 200 in the mid-70s to about 80 in the early 80s to about 40. Yeah. So there was some attrition because of the failed prophecies, because yeah. of Nettles dying, because of T dying. And it's a different time. I mean, yep. I think that when you're mashing up theosophy and UFO stuff in the, say, early to mid-70s, that you're now in the, you're heading into the 90s. The problems are different. The world yep. is different. The interests are different. The zeitgeist different. is different. You're not going to get a lot of recruits with that kind of uh, uh, philosophy, I guess. And, and they weren't getting a lot of new recruits at this point. No. The people that they had, they'd had for a long time. Yeah. And also the people that they had had really, really conformed to the cult. They all had the same haircut, mm -hmm. deliberately asexual, a deliberately asexual haircut. They all wore the same clothing, deliberately loose and baggy so that no part of your human body was kind of emphasized. It's or loose apparent. baggy track pants, wasn't it? Black. Yeah, black track pants and like, like track shirts and that kind of thing. T-shirt like, kind of thing. Yeah, super loose. They all had new names. Okay. Again, classic cult move. Each one had the same ending of O-D-Y, O-D, which was a kind of diminutive uh, coupled with a prefix of three letters that were meant to represent something about the person. So you had like Genodi and Wakenodi and Yersodi and Lavodi and Genodi. Hmm. Those were all the names. Eight of the male members, because again, the body is something that you're trying to show that you are no longer interested in. You're mm -hmm. ready for the next thing. Mm -hmm. The body is just a, as a container. It's mm -hmm. trash. Well, eight of the male members, in order to demonstrate their willingness to get rid of their old bodies, had had themselves castrated. That's some sunk cost fallacy right there. There's, things had taken a turn for the dark as well. Okay. In the early days, the group didn't make any claims about the end of the world. Okay. They claimed to be the way to get to the next level, but there was no rush. And there was no threat to the world ending. Right. It's just like, no, it's sort of lonely and sad here, but we can go to this better place. By the 1990s, this had changed. 
Doe was increasingly talking about the great recycling, or the spading under, of the world. The metaphysics that they had that underpinned all of their whole story was becoming more and more Manichaean, mm -hmm. which I appreciate as a thing that I've become obsessed with. Mm -hmm. But I do think that this Manichaean worldview, separating things into good and bad, light and dark, and very and stark, devils. like there is yeah. no gradation between those two No realms. grays. Yeah, no grays, just black and white. And and that's... You, you. I didn't let you finish your sentence. You were saying that this is... This this is what happens to the to the group. There's an increased mention of Satan mm -hmm. and evil aliens. Okay. It isn't just the good aliens. No, there's also evil aliens that are trying to hold us back. Mm -hmm. There's demons. This is getting darker probably because of both historical and personal reasons. Historical, the 1990s, we've had Waco and Ruby Ridge. Mm -hmm. And these were both times when the American government overreached catastrophically resulting in dozens of deaths. Mm -hmm. There was Waco, which was, uh, again, another cult, which had another person who claimed to have revealed knowledge. And there was an assault on that compound, which resulted in dozens of people being burned to death. Yeah. In Ruby Ridge, again, we had the Weavers, this family who were kind of trying to separate themselves from, from the society. And then there was a confrontation with the cops and a bunch of them end up getting killed. And we know that this is on Doe's mind, because in one of his final video messages in 1996, Doe overtly references Waco and Ruby Ridge as examples of what can happen to people who love God in their own ways and that go against the mainstream. Mm -hmm. So it is almost impossible that Doe didn't draw parallels between what happened in those situations and what was going to happen to his own group of Heaven's Gate. Okay. The 90s dark stuff was happening, but also personal Doe was getting old and sick. Mm -hmm. He was starting to tell his followers that his own container was failing and wouldn't be around much longer. And because power knowledge had been consolidated in Doe and T, and then it was just in Doe because T was gone, the group is going to be completely lost after Doe's death. We even see this in like societies, in, in countries. If you have some kind of strong man in power, there are countries that completely dissolve once that that figurehead dies. No. You need a succession plan. There was no success. Well, I mean, there was sort of, there was, no, an, that, there was an ascension plan. That was not, yeah. Yeah. So in 1994, there was an internal poster not meant for general circula circulation that was put up in the compound that read, The shedding of our borrowed human bodies may be required in order to take our new bodies belonging to the next world. If you want to leave with us, you must be willing to lose everything of this world in order to have life in the next. Cling to this world and you'll surely die. Mm -hmm. Uh-oh. By 1997, the members of Heaven's Gate were referring to themselves as the Away Team. Right. Which is a reference to... Star Trek. Yeah. Next Generation, no less. Yeah. And it's, um, of course, everybody knows this, but just for the few who haven't seen the show, there's a, a spaceship, the Enterprise... Which is, it can't, or doesn't land on planets. But if you want to get down to a planet, you get beamed down. And the, the people who go, they're called the away team. Right. So the people of Heaven's Gate were the away team on Earth trying to spread the good news. And they were about to get beamed back up. Right. So at this point, they had moved into a housed compound in a suburb of San Diego. D recorded two public video messages. Last chance to evacuate Earth before it's recycled. And planet Earth about to be recycled, your only chance to survive, leave with us. 
And in March of 1997, the Hale-Bopp comet was visible in the night sky. I remember that. I remember this too. I remember coming out of a pub and seeing it in the sky. It was pretty remarkable because it stuck around for a long time. And it was beautiful. Yeah. It was amazing. And Doe claimed that there was a UFO behind that comet. Right. I remember that. And that this was the moment they had been waiting for. The flying saucer wasn't going to land on Earth, this corrupted, evil place. Instead, they were going to have to transport themselves up to it. Between March 22nd and March 26th, 39 members of Heaven's Gate dressed themselves in identical black tracksuits and Nikes. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason for the Nikes, Doe wore Nikes, so everyone else did too. Uh, Nike, of course, had the slogan, just do it. Yeah, that that has come up so often in really unfortunate associations. Yeah, and this is one of them. Uh, although, actually, the members of Heaven's Gate changed the slogan to just Doe it. Uh, referring to Doe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then they recorded a bunch of farewell statements. And I've watched them all. Mm. And it is a hard watch. Yeah, I'm sure. Because as you're watching it, like I'm not a very expressive TV watcher. I'm not a person who yells back at movies. But I like stood up, got out of my chair, paced the room. Sure. And I said, don't, like, don't do it. Mm -hmm. Guys, don't do it. They seem adorable. Yeah. They seem like a bunch of adorable nerds. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they started a webpage in 95. Yeah. Did you say they, that's, that's very nerdy. This group was uninterested in hurting other people as well. Yeah. Uh, Unlike Waco, they weren't yeah. stockpiling weapons. Yeah. Or abusing children. Yeah. Like none of that was happening with this group. In fact, you couldn't be a child. They would not allow any child, uh, children okay. in the group. You had to be at least 18. And also, when you're watching these statements, you can see the individual people struggling between the beliefs and the cognitive dissonance. Right. And there's one, Lavodi, in her statement, she starts talking about what everyone is about to do, and she starts to cry. Mm -hmm. But she's in a group situation. Everyone else in the group starts to laugh. Hmm. And so then she starts to laugh. So you can almost see her getting pulled She's having a thought, an individual thought, like, wait, what's happening? What are we about to do? Starts yeah. to cry about, the, about the, the horrors of it. Yeah. And then that group laughs, and then that group laughter infects her, and it kind of brings her out of the cognitive dissonance. She starts talking about the temptation of the vehicle and the task she needs to do. So she's like convincing. You can watch her talk herself into it mm -hmm. in the video mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and use the thought terminating cliches, and she starts to use the language of the cult. And as she does that, she becomes more and more confident. And so by the end of her speech, she's gone back to the comforting refrain of tea and dough are the way and the light. Mm -hmm. So she's managed to talk herself back into this thing yep. that she's about to do. Oh, there's another one, Elodie. He says that his vehicle had always wanted to visit Ireland, at which point I stood up and I was like, then go to Ireland. Yeah. Like, ah. And he also said that he was originally clued into the truth about the next level above human way back in the 50s when he read an article about the Aztec flying saucer crash. Uh-huh. And then I flipped my chair over. Yeah. Because I that was a scam. a scam. Ah. And then he said when that story about the Aztec flying saucer didn't become huge news, he knew that, ah, oh, the truth is being hidden from us. Uh-huh. And it's like, it's frustrating. It's a frustrating watch. He also referenced reading a book on fairies and elves and said, you know, if you don't believe in them, they can't exist. That's why it's so important for us to believe in this with all our hearts. Mm -hmm. It's like the, the Tinkerbell school of existence. 
I once read, what was it, a poem or something that that had the thesis that that's why airplanes fly. And that used to stress me out oh, like no. no to no end because the this, idea- Wait, of, have we gotten to the root of your fear of flying? Well, it was, no, I had already had the fear of flying. And clearly I knew this was a, a joke. Right. But something about it, I was like, and I felt- very stressed in airplanes thinking, Oh dear. I know this isn't supposed to work, but if there are too many people like me, it's really not going to work. This plane is going down. Oh boy. <laughs> so, using a combination of drugs and alcohol and asphyxiation, 39 members took their own lives, including the brother of Nichelle Nichols. Uh, who is not a name to me? Who is Lieutenant Uhura? No. Yeah. Uhura's brother wow. was at Heaven's Gate and took his own life. Huh. Yeah. Which is Star Trek. That, yeah, from Star Trek. I don't want to get too graphic, and maybe I should just put that in as a warning for anybody who just doesn't want to hear anything more about how they actually died. But when you say asphyxiation, I seem to remember they had plastic bags yeah. over their heads. And we're, we're not going to go into the details of specifically how, one, because it, it doesn't matter very much, no. and two, because it's just not a good idea to broadcast instructions. But, and, but it's important, unlike something like Jonestown, yeah. there was no murder at Heaven's Gate. Right. Although there have been people who have argued that there was 38 murders and only one suicide. I disagree. Huh. So there was a... No so the idea being that, that one person no. essentially killed everybody and then took his own life. Yep. Wow. But he killed them with his ideas. Right. Okay. No. Oh, oh you're pulling that trick now, the flipping that's, between the metaphorical right. yes, and... Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. So there was an anonymous call made to 911 reporting a mass suicide. Police went to the compound, found the bodies. Was that one of the members? Or somebody, maybe maybe somebody who was working as a groundskeeper who looked in the window and was like, I don't want, I want anything, anything to do, to with, do with, any, with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, now, this is when I actually have memories of the news reports. Oh, yeah. Because we were alive then. There was a press release that they had sent out before this event. By the time you receive this, we'll be gone. Several dozen of us. We came from the level above human in distant space, and we have now exited the bodies that we were wearing for our earthly task to return to the world from whence we came. Task completed. The distant space we refer to is what your religious literature would call the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Now, there were a lot of members who weren't at the compound for this. And what makes this even more tragic is that three of the Heaven's Gate members who hadn't been at the compound would later still dress up in their uniforms and take their own lives. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them was Wayne Cook. His wife had been among the 39 dead at the compound. Mm. There was also a 58-year-old man named Robert Nichols who hadn't been connected to the group at all. Oh, so this is like a copycat. Yeah, after the story comes out in the paper, he takes his own life in the same way as them and wrote a note stating, I'm going on the spaceship with Hale-Bopp to be with those who have gone before me. Hmm. Because we're that social. We are that social that ideas are contagious. Mm -hmm. Even something like this is contagious. What are the lessons of this? I mean, we've kind of talked about them as we went through. What are, what are your takeaways? Why don't you start? Because I often go first. So this week, because we're always researching like eight or nine things at once. And so this week I've been researching a Canadian cult. Right. And I was speaking to a reporter out from Medicine Hat, who I'll have on the show because he's fascinating. 
And this cult has threatened him. Uh, they've threatened his life. Mm -hmm. They've threatened to have him executed. Mm -hmm. He's not worried about that, although he thinks it's entirely possible that somebody will try. Mm -hmm. What he's worried about is what's going to happen to them. What's mm -hmm. going to happen to these cult members? They've walled themselves up in a very cold place, and they have a totalist belief system. They're going to be experiencing tremendous amounts of cognitive dissonance. It's bad. It's a bad scene. And the fact that he is worried about them, despite them threatening his life, I'm impressed by that. And also, I think it is one of the key takeaways from this, is that I don't think there was a murderer in the story. I, I agree with you. I think this is a scam without a scammer. Mm -hmm. I think that there were ideas in society. I think that there were certain vulnerabilities that the, the people had for various reasons, their own individual reasons. And I think this is an example of a belief system forming without anybody deliberately manipulating anybody. Yeah. I think there was probably a little bit of manipulation there as we look at like Balch when he was talking about how the actual cult operated. Mm -hmm. But in the end, I think that Marshall Applewhite believed what he was saying was true. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that is one of the lessons is that the danger of something we've always talked about is that ideas can kind of take on, they're an organism. Ideas are organisms and we are the hosts of those organisms. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I would say that's one. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if what I'm going to say is any different from what you're saying. What I worry about or think about when I hear stories like this is how is it that I can keep myself safe and what were the mechanisms what were the building blocks of the, the this idea organism that was so pernicious and so destructive? And how do I relate that to my like the the ways in which I exist in the world too? Because again, like yeah, I, I like the point that you make about noting that these are intelligent people. Mm -hmm. They're not there isn't something wrong with them. They're and they're people. They're people. Yeah. And so Whatever is wrong with them is also wrong with the rest of us in by and large. Yeah. And again, like when I talked about, you know, standing up for the national anthem, there are ways in which we do a lot of this stuff too. I mean, I rationalize all kinds of stuff. And whenever I say that and try to think of an example, I can't think of one. Right. Because of course Because you've rationalized it out of your conscious thought. Right. It's just like, no, everything that I think I've always thought, it's always because it's true. Mm -hmm. But I think there are lessons about certain idea structures that are really dangerous. Elements like not allowing doubt mm -hmm. or just how the sunk cost fallacy traps us into stuff. The dangers of revealed knowledge. The dangers of revealed knowledge and how we are all very vulnerable to these kinds of totalizing belief systems almost and i like again this epidemiological model that you've constantly brought up uh, as a metaphor that there are really dangerous diseases in terms of the idea world there are some that are you know like mild colds better not to have them but right, but you can you can get by. You can get by, and even if it's a drag on your life, it's not a substantial one. Then there's ones that will kill you. Mm -hmm. And what is it about that system that 
the structure of the ideas that makes it one of those really dangerous and contagious and vicious kinds of belief structures that is really going to harm you. Some of the things that this particular belief system organism had that made it, I think, exceptionally dangerous. One, a dismissal of this world. Right. A dismissal of, like, no, there's a better place. Yeah. No, no, and we can get, and we can get there if you just listen to me. And, and like hating this world. So I've, I talked to, I have a lot of contacts and I've been talking to somebody who is expecting the rapture. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to get him to just enjoy his life. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to, I'm, at this point, he's not just a contact anymore. I feel responsible. Yeah. And so I'm saying, listen, I, I obviously I can't fight against his belief system. So I'm trying to use his belief system. And I'm saying, this will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. This is all going to happen, you think. Mm-hmm. You don't need to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So you can just kick back and relax and hang out with friends and maybe go for a nice walk. Yeah. And he says, no, we are told to despise this world. Mm-hmm. It's like, damn it, there's nothing I can do about that. There is some passage in the gospel that I'm familiar with in which Jesus says, no, 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 if you were going to love me, you've got to hate everything else. Mm-hmm. And that's one of my least favorite bits of that book. Mm-hmm. And that is a dangerous thought. You have to despise this world. That's bad. The isolation, like the best thing of this world is community. The best thing of this world is the other people and even like the like your dogs and cats and yeah. like birds that you make friends with. The best part of this world is community. And so the fact that this belief system suggested that that was somehow bad because it tied you to this place. Mm-hmm. I think that was one of the most particularly lethal bits because it would force those people to experience more isolation, more loneliness, yeah. which then fed into the belief system saying, of course you're isolated right. and lonely. You're in this crooked, terrible place. Right. And also, we're the only people you've got. Yeah. And we're all that's left. Traps you even more. Yikes. Now, I don't want to end like this because it's so bleak. So I will instead end on an optimistic note and talk about the amazing power of community. (laughs) Community is great. It's my favorite thing about being alive. It's all we got, really. It's all we've got. And I feel extremely fortunate. Uh, uh, One of the things that I think prevents me from being susceptible to belief systems like this Mm. is I like it out here. Yeah. Like, look at the people we know. Yeah. The the people that we work with, the people we're friends with. Look at the people that we, the uncover up yeah. is a community. Yeah. And I love hearing from listeners. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've become friends with people through the uncover up. Like yeah. Sean and Sherry and Shelly. And, and, and yeah, I'm glad you gave a shout out to all of them. Yeah. And it's, and that's fantastic. So I think in a weird way, this is one of the things that protects me from those belief systems. Yeah. And this is your 100th episode. It's my 100th episode. And again, people are saying, wait, you had a whole 100 episode extravaganza. We did. That That was was, was my 100th episode. Well, it was also the Uncover-Ups 100th episode. Right. But it's true. My 100th episode. Nathan went rogue on some of the early shows, did them by himself. And sometimes I was on holiday. Yeah. That happened a couple of times. But this is your 100th. This is my 100th. And Lee, perhaps not wanting to join some kind of uncover-up cult, refuses to get tattooed like I did. <laughs> it's true. I did not get a tattoo to celebrate. But we couldn't let the 100th episode pass without some kind of recognition. Okay. And so we're going to do this live on air. Hold on, i got to get something. Okay. He's walking out the room. Be right back. All right, so... This never happened. Oh! Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness! 
That's adorable and wonderful. It is a painting of Bigfoot. Oh my God. That is so kind of you. That is so sweet. 